Hello and welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm your host, Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and I'm thrilled to be bringing you yet another great episode for season three. Coming up in today's episode, we have a brilliant conversation between myself and Conrad Dobschutz, National Director at the NHS Innovation Accelerator and Chief Enterprise Officer at UCL Partners. We cover lots of ground about digital innovation, including a look to the future and diagnostic cars it's well worth sticking around for. But before that, let's get started with a look back at the past week or so in news you might have missed. Last week saw Boehringer Ingelheim reach new heights in its breathless campaign to raise awareness for interstitial lung disease. The company employed celebrity vocal coach Eric Vitro and Yankee legend Bernie Williams to launch its Tune Into Lung Health program, designed to raise awareness around the disease and help sufferers cope with its mental, emotional and physical burden through music and breathing. The campaign features a four-part video series of breathing exercises led by Vitro, as well as first-person accounts from patients and some mood boosting tunes shared by the duo. Similarly, Sanofi has teamed up with the American Lung Association for its new respiratory syncytial virus or RSV campaign. This disease awareness drive addresses the true horror for new parents presented by RSV, a highly contagious and potentially fatal seasonal cold-like virus. Sanofi is assisting the ALA to push awareness to parents about this dangerous infection, including signs to look out for in young children. Sanofi's Bayfortis vaccine received recommended approval from European regulators to prevent RSV in infants, with GSK and Pfizer additionally working on RSV vaccines too. As our previous Catalyst interviewee Judy Stewart mentioned earlier this year when we were discussing GSK's vaccine programme, we'll link that in the show notes. And speaking of GSK, the company has announced that starting next year, it will require suppliers to make sustainability commitments and chart improvements on things like emissions and energy. Lisa Martin, Chief Procurement Officer at GSK, said that as a global biopharma company committed to getting ahead of disease together, we must work closer than ever with our supply chain and beyond to catalyse positive change across environmental systems and protect the health of the planet and people. Some 40% of GSK's carbon footprint is linked to its supply chain, so hopefully this commitment will be a step in the right direction for the company's environmental efforts. Now, as I mentioned, I recently had the pleasure of speaking to Conrad Dobschutz, National Director at the NHS Innovation Accelerator and Chief Enterprise Officer at UCL Partners about his long and varied career within the pharmaceutical industry and digital innovation. By way of introduction, Conrad is the Chief Enterprise Officer and leads on strategic enterprise, industry partnerships and digital health for UCL Partners. In his dual role, he is also the National Director for NHS Innovation Accelerator to support exceptional individuals to scale promising innovations across England's NHS for patient and staff benefit. Prior to joining these organisations in September 2022, Conrad worked for Novartis, where he was Head of Customer Solutions, Digital and Health Innovation and Biome UK. He has a track record of successfully onboarding startups, as well as creating strategic frameworks for innovation enablement. Conrad has also driven large-scale digital transformation projects for international companies such as Pfizer and GE Healthcare across Europe and international markets, including Asia. 
His other experience includes e-commerce, omni-channel marketing, commercialization of assets and strategy development, along with AI, blockchain and Internet of Things innovation projects. The list goes on. Generally, as Conrad says, he keeps himself busy trying to solve the mysteries of the universe. He's a well-known speaker on the Pharma Conference circuit and had an incredible amount of thoughts and ideas to share with us about digital innovation in pharma and beyond. So without further ado, let's have a listen. Conrad, thank you so much for joining us on the Gold Podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here. And sorry for my crackly voice. I just come out of the cold. (laughs) (laughs) Not to worry at all. And it's a pleasure to have you. Um, So we like to start our podcast interviews getting to know a little bit about our guests' career journeys. So with that in mind, um, you originally started out your career in marketing. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you came to focus on digital innovation? Oh, absolutely. Um, So my my career is quite... It's, it's not a straight line. So actually, um, I come from Germany, as you might hear from my Arnold Schwarzenegger imitation of an accent. <laughs> and um, I basically started off in, in fashion retail. So I had my own fashion brand back in Germany. Um, mildly successful, I want to say, um, together with a PR marketing agency. Um, so as a sort of combined effort. And um, yeah, I mean, that went bust in 2009, um, quite drastically in the financial crisis. And, you know, you fall and you stand up again. Um, so that was in Germany, in Berlin. And then very quickly, the decision uh, was made, okay, let's let's pack bags. And it was off to London with um, 500 pounds in the pocket and a flat in Streatham, four places, a lovely Streatham, um, paid for, for two months and no job. Um, because the, the idea was really, um, okay, you're going to get out of here. Um, you have to start new. Um, you don't want to live off social support in Germany. Um, so I started in call centers for £8.50 an hour. The same year, I was at a, at a fashion week in Berlin where I had uh, champagne. So, you know, life offers, offers its contrasts. Absolutely, yeah. Um, amazing that you, you took that leap and just uh, yeah came over to London with, with just £500 in your pocket. Um, yep. So when you left the, the call centres and that kind of thing, mm. where, where did your career take you then? So um, I pretty much ended up very swiftly in, in the e-commerce world because in, in the, to, to understand how I got in there, um, in, the, in the fashion world, um, the, the brand... Um, was really the first one to have a, a Twitter account in 2008 in Germany and also a few other quite innovative pieces. And, and I'm not a designer, so if you were to look at me now, you see me in my jeans and my raggedy T-shirt. Um, <laughs> so no, nowhere near a designer. Somebody else did that. Um, <clears throat> but that, um, that drive to look at um, innovative methodologies wherever they happen, however they happen, um, is always there. So I got basically, almost by accident, as much as many things in my career, um, into e-commerce and worked for a e-commerce SaaS provider for four years for Canon, uh, for sorry, for large clients like um, Canon, um, G Healthcare, Kaspersky, and really looking after their sort of online store presence. So whenever anybody bought something online, also in the UK from Canon or, or other brands, um, they would essentially utilize the platform provided by the SaaS provider and, and the payment 
method. It sounds a bit trivial, um, but uh, they off they had quite a a big offering. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, so pharma was obviously something you came to later, mm. and I think you joined Pfizer in in 2016. Was this an industry that you ever saw yourself working in, and and what was it about it that appealed to you in particular? So short answers, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> so I never thought I'm going to work in the pharma industry, um, and. It actually came to me as a um, sort of as a contract offer, right, which then turned permanent. Um, but um, my, my first instinct was, do you really want to work for pharma? So, you know, you heard all the bad things and stuff. And but then if you take a closer look, you actually understand the value that the pharma industry adds to the to society. There have been bad times. Let's just recognize that. Right. Um where um, and we all know what what happened, and and there are still some some bad players out there, which hopefully won't be much longer. But overall, pharma is a very important factor in our society. And I was just when we opened here saying I'm coming out of a cold. That's only because of antibiotics. Where did they come from? Pharma companies. So we live with this stuff, and we have we have to live with it because we need it. Um, and, you know, and that, that was my attitude um, initially, sort of that mixed feeling, right? But then when you come in, you, you see how many really highly skilled, dedicated people actually work in that industry. And they wear their, their so to speak, wear their heart on their sleeves, right? They, they really believe in, in what's happening and what they're doing has a purpose. And that, I thought it was really inspiring. But but the one thing really is, and and I, I kept that up pretty much all the way through, uh, also in my time in, in Novartis, I always kept the foot outside. You know, you always need to to be able to to just step outside the door and look inside the window a bit to see what's going on, and it be a bit critical as well, um, because otherwise you lose your, I call it like healthy criticism. Mm-hmm. right and and curiosity you lose it if you get eaten up uh quote unquote by uh by sort of that corporate world yeah absolutely i love that um analogy you use there of stepping outside the door and looking through the window i think that's it's just so important to to take that step back and and really analyze the situation mm. and work out the best way forward isn't it yep Definitely. Um, So we've talked a lot on the podcast and in Gold Magazine in general about farmers position within the digital landscape. And I know it's forever changing and it's come a long way. Um, But how far do you think pharma has come in digital during the um, six or so years that you were in the industry? Hmm. Tricky question. (laughs) It is. It is one of tricky nature. Yes. Um, Because I don't want to upset my colleagues. Um, but and I'm 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 part of this, right? And and uh, until recently, um, working for Novartis, what, what was very much part of this, and and the great work that's been done there as well. But I think um, if I were to turn back the time six years ago, or um, uh, or even a bit more than that, um, I I would argue, okay, what what's really changed? So you do you really have a three sixty? customer-centric view uh, informed by data? No. Do you really have in the majority of pharma companies um, global-based CRMs with global 
e-consent or e-permission capture? No. Um, and I could continue this, right? Um, the, the only field where I can see um, a, a big increase in capability is indeed in the Salesforce space. So that is your hybrid and your virtual Salesforce. And I mean, we've seen it with Pfizer last year um, as a learning out of COVID, or I think it was beginning of this year, they announced they're going to, in the US, um, replace um, all field-based field force with uh, hybrid or virtual. Um, you know, so that's, um, that's, in my point of view, that's a consequence of COVID, yes, but it's also a consequence of what customers really want. You, you know, so that combo, um, uh, we're, not, we're not there. Um, I remember conversations when I joined uh, uh, the, the Big P uh, in 2016 and then 17 about uh, customer centricity, um, data capture, um, and, and all of those elements. And I hear them, I still hear them at conferences, they haven't gone away. So I'm wondering what's happened in six years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with that in mind then, how do you think pharma should and could support digital innovation in the future, whether that's um, kind of HCPs and patients, but also mm. internally within the, the organizations themselves? Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. So I think um, we, we're going to have to split this up a little. Um, the, the first one, um, when, we, when we think about digital transformation, we think about uh, marketing automation, the Salesforce piece I was talking about, sort of customer centricity and all that stuff. But and So that's your one pillar. Um, and then the other element really is digital health. Um, you know, so I, I spoke about the, the first pillar a bit in terms of really going towards a 360 understanding of your customer and where possible of your patient as well. But that's nowhere near. So investing in global standardized platforms and pulling them through. Um, and Pfizer, for example, has made good strides um, to, to drop a, a Brian Marketo here and then other tools, right? So um, a lot has happened there, but it's still not there yet. Um, so a lot needs to be happening there, but let's let's change up a gear and let's look at digital health, um, which is sort of um, the darling child of a lot of pharma companies, um, because it's uh, uh, it's sexy, right? Um, and there's a lot of money uh, invested in digital health. I mean, as of recent um, digital health VC investments have overtaken fintech, um, and that means a lot because fintech is money basically. How do I make money with more money? Um, so that is a signal. But what um, where a lot of um, large pharma cores, the smaller ones as well actually, do struggle with is pull through and scalability. So something happens in pharma companies, um, and I can talk about my experience a bit in, in Novartis as well, um, and it's called pilotitis. So you, you stand up, you work with, um, you work with a, an external vendor, um, which could be a scale-up, uh, amazing tech, um, AI, whatnot, um, helping patients diagnostics remotely. And, and I looked after all these projects together with my team, and they're amazing. Um, but then you look at it and you go, okay, we've done this now in, in this patient cohort, um, but there's all the other guys out there 
But all of a sudden, what happens? The sponsor, which is in this case the pharmaco, has a change of priority, so there's no more money. And it just goes. Gone. So all you have is a is a, a rough reading, like from a from a uh, 120-year-old uh, telegraph post that arrives today, that message. So a rough reading about your proof of concept outputs. You kind of tested them, look good, but you can't scale them because you don't have any money anymore. Mm. And you're done. Yeah. And that's where it stops dead end. And and that's and that's one of the large issues. Um and we can talk about this in in a bit um of uh of intrapreneurs in in large corporations. Right. Um <clears throat> so but to round this bit off, I think digital health um it has a huge potential. Um but one thing that a lot of startups, and I worked with a lot of startups in my time in Novartis when I was leading the, the biome, the innovation lab there for the UK. Um, a lot of startups forget that a pharma company wants to sell its product. And the pharma company's product is not a digital therapeutic because there's no money in it. And that's the brutal truth so as long as a startup or scale-up with an amazing digital therapeutic, diagnostic, whatever it is, product cannot align themselves to the needs of the brand and the NHS, they're doomed. There's no, there's no market. Yeah, that's a really interesting point there. And it's a gloomy point as well. It is a very gloomy point, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned in your answer there the need for global standardized platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, how much of the, I guess you could describe it as almost like a stalling of dig- digital innovation, um, how much of that do you think is down to sort of regional nuances and, and developments in, in some places around the world and not others? Yeah, so I think there um, naturally, um, if you compare the US um, with its... Um, uh, increased ability of, um, for example, direct-to-patient communication or um, ads to, to patients um, and, and a bit more of a lax approach to data protection with um, broader speaking Europe, which includes the UK. Um, of course, there are, there are regional uh, nuances, right? And, and not just nuances in some respects, uh, uh, gulfs as large as the Atlantic is. Um, because if you look at, at Germany, uh, my, my home country, um, recently um, there was a, um, a, a ruling um, in, in a European court, actually, that um, the, the German data protection law is, um, is not strict enough. So there are certain, uh, certain items where uh, data collection is so anonymized that it doesn't make any sense anymore. So that's why pharma companies, in, specifically in Europe, and, and I mean, I, when I was working in Pfizer, my US colleagues looked at me and were like, okay, why are you uh, uh, hypothesizing all these patient or, or HCP personas? Don't you have the data to build them? And the answer was no, we don't. So there is a lot of gap filling going on where the data is actually missing. So. Um, that gap filling where the data is missing is an issue because then you you go into the realms of um, 
of make-believe what you think your customer is, who they are and what they want. So when pharma teams are looking at progressing their digital innovation, um, what would you say are the top line considerations that they need to take note of? What are your kind of top tips for where they should start? So I think, um, uh, first of all, what what's the problem you're trying to fix? So do you really need to invest in a massive social listening platform? What are you going to do with it? So does it fill a need knowing that social listening platforms like Sprinkler, for example, or, or others can only dig as deep down as the users let them? Right? So they are, they are basically glorified web scraping tools. Um, and, and I worked with the Sprinklers and Sermos of this world, and I'm impressed by the technology, but they can't, which is the right thing, they can't dive into a Facebook account, which they shouldn't be. Right, so sentiment is only as good as much as you can uh, gather in terms of data. So consider again what problems you're trying to fix to round that point up. Um, make sure you uh, you get your ex executive uh, sponsor ready, and also make sure that they uh, actually sign off some budget that lasts you more than three months. You know, okay. um, because pulling the plug can be easier. Um, so you want to make sure you um, you assign your, and this is the boring bit, but you assign your budgets for quite some time, right? And you, you have your POs raised and you spend them because then nobody can come and take your money away. So you've recently taken a step away from pharma and are now working for the NHS Innovation Accelerator and UCL Partners, where a lot of your work centers on digital health strategy and partnerships, I believe. To what extent do you think collaboration is key to the future of digital innovation in pharma? So I think um, collaboration to, to drive innovation is absolutely key. You can't, um, it comes back to the pilotitis point I made before. Right. What you can't have is every single, not just every single pharma company running their own pilots, but then brands or therapy areas within the pharma companies running their own pilots, addressing a similar patient or NHS need. Um, because what you then have is you've got an aptitude of solutions that are pocketed. Um, they might be successful in their little, uh, in their little area, but they are not scalable. So what it needs actually is a broad brush approach steered by the NHS that commissions solutions that are that only commission solutions that are scalable, that works with partners that have the legs to continue a journey for two, three, four years and don't fall over because VC funding is out. You know, so that's one of the big learnings um, as well from my time in, in Novartis, um, working with um, uh, various uh, startups. Um, you, you end up, and this comes to the collaboration innovation, you, you end up teaching them how the world works. No disrespect. And they teach you how their tech works, but in tech lingo. Right. So you almost need a translator in between. And that's where the sort of these innovation hubs from a lot of pharma companies come in. They're supposed to be the translator of all of this stuff, right? Accelerate onboarding, accelerate testing. Um, 
but then I mean the the key issues are that these these hubs and and this is across all pharmacos, these hubs unfortunately very often don't have enough commercial and enterprise backing. So you're going to rely on two, one, two, three people uh, per market or even globally to push that massive rock up the hill in this Sisyphonian uh, task of driving innovation internally. So the only way these guys can succeed is by hooking on to the NHS and collaborating with the NHS, which is essentially the customer of a pharma company here in the UK, broadly speaking, collaborate with the healthcare system, and then fix the challenges of the NHS in benefit, almost, of the pharma company. So that's the roundy round, right? So what doesn't work anymore um, is is this whole open innovation approach. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry to say I'm very sort of firm on that based on learnings and my own experience. If you go in and you just try to do something nice to, uh, I don't know, to accelerate patient pathways um, or whatever, but you don't have a, a problem to fix, um, you're never going to be successful. The collaboration comes in, um, you need you need the NHS and you also need, um, pharma companies have their, have their point here. But what I would encourage my colleagues and peers in, in the digital health space, uh, in the innovation space, which I know many, and, and they are amazing peers, very driven and, and very, very smart cookies, get more enterprise and executive support for what you're trying to do. Because ultimately, you need to ask yourself the question, why would the NHS, which I'm now family-wise a part of, and I'm proud of that, why would the NHS want to work with XYZ Pharma Company if budgets get pulled 12 months later? You know, that's a worry. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, I know your kind of area of expertise is is the NHS, but are you aware of, of similar sort of systems in other countries with other healthcare systems? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, um, if you look at um if you look at Germany, um so Germany, I think, has um, currently, and I'm going to misquote this, but I think it's way over 100 healthcare payers or, or health, uh, insurers, you can call mm -hmm. them. Um, so not just the one um, big, large body, but there are over 100 in Germany, which makes it absolutely nightmarish mm. to yeah. scale. But look, I mean, that's why, that's why the... Um, the UK is so interesting for, for innovators. Um, and that's why, for example, the, the NIA, the uh, NHS Innovation Accelerator, which I'm now proudly the national director of, um, is also pulling in uh, all that uh, great um, knowledge that exists in the UK, but also attracted from abroad, mm. right? And and have that um, and pull in that, um, <clears throat> that those, those skills because what's the UK best for? It's really good test bed mm. because it's English speaking, right? It's essentially one system, albeit it's not really because you've got the different integrated care systems, the primary care, the primary care networks, all that stuff. And they operate slightly differently. Um, but overall, you've got one system. So it's easier 
to test um, with all the uh, pitfalls I mentioned before. So I know patient centricity is a topic close to your heart and you touched on it earlier in your answers. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about your focus there? Why, why is it so important to you and your work? So number one, we're all patients. Mm-hmm. Everybody here um, that is listening to this and, and um, I, I would argue you too as well. Everybody has had some contact with the healthcare system in their life. Um, spe- essentially when we were one year old and got our first vaccination. So we're all patients, number one. Mm-hmm. So we must be by definition the most important piece in the system. Mm-hmm. It's not a, um, it can't be the the NHS as a whole or it can't be a, a doctor or a nurse appreciating all the hard work that everybody's doing in the system of NHS. But if mm-hmm. we don't get patient care right, we don't get the NHS right. Mm. And and that's and, and actually today the new health minister uh, was on the radio um, uh, plan for patients. I mean, you know, I'm going to stay out of politics, but the word <laughs> patient is in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because it has to be key um, to what, what we're all doing. Um, if I, for example, improve, uh, let's say, capacity in the NHS with uh, um, uh, patient-reported outcome management uh, or, or patient-initiated follow-ups, PFUs, which all be mm-hmm. digitized uh, these days. Yeah, I'm improving capacity in NHS, but who for? For patients. So they can go and see a, a doctor or a nurse if they have to. And that must be the focus. There cannot be anything else. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed is that when, and this is experience, right, in the last few years, doing workshops and all that stuff and design thinking, and it's all really cool and um, uh, enjoyable. But you know who's never in the room? The patient. Mm. Never there. Right. Um, yeah. There are attempts like to work with patient organizations um, from a pharma company uh, side of you. And, and they are, uh, I, I think they are uh, admirable. But do they really bring the voice of the patient to the table when it, come, when, it, uh, when it comes to developing programs that are supposed to be helping patients? Mm. I'm going to leave it as a question. Yeah. Right? Um, so I think uh, patient-centered care has to be the focus. And one more addition to that, my personal vision and I had that in, in, in the Novartis time and I'm carrying this along really is that it must be possible to have the whole patient pathway from the patient's couch. That is your diagnostic all the way to adherence via treatment and continuous care. It must be possible. So and that's where we see these elements of innovation springing up when you think about um, for example non-invasive lipid testing like um, things where you can test LDLC and other lipid markers through sweat and saliva, right? You could do it at home. So you don't need to rock up in your GP practice anymore that is hopelessly overwhelmed um, or the phlebotomist, the next appointment is in four weeks, you know? So you could do it at home. You, you put that patch in an envelope and you send it off, done. So that's my, that's, that's, that's where I really live in and that's my space because that then is patient-centered care 
and where you where there is a need for the patients that have to sit in front of a doctor or have to occupy a hospital bed for all the right reasons, they can then do that without delay. There are no more ambulances waiting in front of hospitals and quite frankly, patients dying. That doesn't need to happen anymore, really. We've got the tech available to, to prevent that. Yeah. Definitely. It sounds like um, a, very, a very easy solution the way you described it then. But um, what would your kind of best guess be for how far away from that reality we are? Look, I mean, there are, um, I'm going to struggle with this because there are mm. um, really good uh, buckets of innovation across, the, across England already. Um, they are driven by the AHSNs, by the AHSN network. They're driven by, also by my colleagues in pharma, um, they're driven by by extremely skilled um, entrepreneurs within the NHS. There's a clinical entrepreneurship program headed up by Erica White and and, um, and Tony Young. Great work there. And so what we're trying to do with the NHS Innovation Accelerator is really um, galvanizing all that talent to make it better. So the pockets are there. Um, I think what it needs, it needs a system approach. What we can't have is one solution, let's stay in the capacity space, right? Um, being run in, say, in, um, I don't making this up now, in uh, the guys in St. Thomas, um, or in the other one is run in, um, in Manchester. It needs to be one for everybody. Look, I'm going to say I grew up in East Germany. Okay, so I grew up behind the Iron Curtain, my personal story here a bit, but it makes sense in a second. Um, we had also just one healthcare system, like one. Um, there was no um, no digital, of course. Everything um, well, was a while ago now. Um, I'm not going to say how long. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, but but the benefit was you, um, and it wasn't communism. So I don't want to glorify communism, which I disapprove of. Um, but it was one system. If a decision was made okay, we're going to now um, push this XYZ uh, workforce solution out, it would happen. And it would happen across because there are no pockets. So everybody would do it, not because they were told to or because they were fear of uh, prison. No, because it made sense and it was the right thing to do. So I think what it needs is a um, is really a uh, not just a framework approach, but a policy approach whereby only a set amount of solutions are being commissioned across NHS England, not across an ICS, across NHS England, that fix um, the issues that are there, mental health, capacity, health inequalities, early cancer diagnostic, and I forgot the fifth one. Um, <laughs> workforce optimization, there we go. Um, <laughs> so those five, you don't need 50 solutions for those. Do you know how many you need? Five. That's the way forward, and to give you give you a timeline, I think with the with the right energy behind it, um, um, we're we're not far off. We're not far off. I'll give it I'll give it another another ten ten years, maybe a bit less, and then we see these little pockets. They have grown and grown, and they start connecting like on a chessboard, and you can start moving across the white fields, um, you know, with your with your queen. So that's going to happen. 
That's brilliant. And thank you for that that personal example there. Um, it's, um, yeah, really interesting. I think there's lots of work to do, obviously, but it sounds like the drive is is there. So it'll be fascinating yeah. to see how that develops. Um, so moving on to my final question now. Sure. Um, you've previously spoken about um, taking digital health innovation into our vehicles. Um, so could you mm. tell our audience a little bit more about that and what you kind of envision for the future of digital health um, in that respect? Absolutely. So this is one of those, I wake up in the morning and I have an idea, ideas. Um, love those. I love those too, because you know why? I'm going to tell you this now. Because our brain, when we wake up, is in this fuzzy state, right? Mm -hmm. And we're in this twilight zone. And this is where great ideas happen, because mm -hmm. essentially when we dream, we're connected. And now you're going to laugh about me. We're connected to the stars and we're connected to everything, in anything yeah. so mm -hmm. you can dream as big as the stars when you dream but you're still in that mode when you wake up but with a touch mm -hmm. of realism because you arrive in the real world throw those yeah. two together don't touch your phone in the morning for god's sake yeah. don't touch your phone just let your brain do the work okay so this is how this came about um but i've had some conversations already with people that i think that this actually has some legs so um we the majority of people, maybe not the uh, people in London that need to go on the tube, but um, uh, me now living in, in leafy Surrey, um, you have a car. Um, and and the car is, is really um, the preferred mode of transport. That's what it is. It's, uh, it's not the train because it's hideously expensive. Um, it's not the bicycle because you can't go up and down the hills every day. I can't. Um, so it is the car. Um, so therefore, the logic is the cars are home from home. You um, you spend a lot of time in the car. I mean, when I was driving to Novartis here from from uh, from Farnham, uh, it would take me um, a combined three hours, sometimes more. Um, so that's three hours of your day spent in a vehicle. Um, so why can't we use the vehicles that are more and more equipped with um, uh, sensors? More and more, um, they're also self-driving or self-driving features at least. Why can't we use them as diagnostic devices for health? So if I sit down in my seat, my seat could be first point of, uh, of uh, a scale that weighs me every day and over time can alert me if I put on too much weight, if I get fat. Mm. The, in, the, in the wheel, you can uh, do glucose testing. The patches exist. It's not a big deal to create, um, to stop killing little wheels and just do um, uh, a layer of sensors on your on your steering wheel. Mm -hmm. um, you can also detect dermatologic, uh, dermatologic uh, issues through that. Furthermore, um, through cameras that already exist, right? There are uh, driver aids that alert you if you fall asleep. So if they yeah. track eye movement, why can't they start tracking things like uh, uh, cataract, emerging cataract, wet AMD, your eyesight, you're losing your eyesight, you may want to go to an optician to get checked. So all of those elements, they should be possible in a car. And then if you do that further, the car itself is a confined entity of a, a spacey laptop on wheels, right? Yeah. Um and not just the, the Teslas of this uh, world, but also also the other ones now, VWs mm -hmm. and BMWs and all my other 
good German brands. Um, <laughs> plug. So, um, but basically, they are um, they they have everything in it. They are a confined computer entity, and they should be able to process the majority of that information in the car without the need of sharing too much with too much of your health um, uh, data with a cloud or with a untrusted. Um, uh, sources or sorry data sources so it should stay there and there is edge computing comes in right so your car becomes an edge iot device that's what your car is and then add the word diagnostic in and you're done um, and if you spin it further you can even start treating people in their cars right if if you diagnose uh, for example rheumatism the car seats uh, can become uh, massage seats for example which you already have um, so all of those things, um, they're there. It just needs somebody to do it. And I know that um, Google, for example, uh, which which I'm talking to, uh, has some of those ideas. Um, I, I know of BMW, for example. So this stuff is already flowing around. It just needs, you know, a bit more drive behind it. And again, the drive is, how do I make money with this? Yeah. And that's the last thing. You can make money with this by telling patients they can sell their patient data to whoever they like to sell it to. Have patients monetize their patient data. Have it. Have patients own it. Switch access on no ifs, no buts, and monetize their own patient data through non-fungible tokens. Tech is there. Platforms are there. Mm. And it can be done. And that's where NFTs make sense. Not in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, where we're all supposed to be becoming gamers now. Ready yeah. player number one. Thank you very much. <laughs> but that's where the tech makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's fascinating. I think um, from what you've described there, the automobile world is our diagnostic oyster, isn't it? It the, is, yes. The, the, I like that. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, feel free. <laughs> Um, yeah, that, that's brilliant. And, and what a, a really interesting note to end on. Thank you so much for that. Um, so, yes, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights into digital innovation in pharma, especially uh, when you're recovering from, from illness. We are so grateful that you could join oh, us on pleasure. the podcast. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was lovely to be with you. Thank you. It was great to pick Conrad's brains about digital innovations. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did and have lots of insights to take away about collaboration, patient centricity and more. Digital innovation is such a varied concept. That does, however, bring us to the end of today's episode. Thank you so much to Comrade for joining me and thanks to you for listening. Do be sure to rate, comment and most importantly, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on next week's episode. Until then, take care and it's goodbye from me.